1 Timothy 3, 8-13 Deacons, likewise, must be dignified, not double-tongued, not addicted to much wine, not greedy for dishonest gain. They must hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience, and let them also be tested first, then let them serve as deacons if they prove themselves blameless. Their wives, likewise, must be dignified, not slanderers, but sober-minded, faithful in all things. Let deacons each be of be the husband of one wife, managing their children and their households well. For those who serve well as deacons gain a good standing for themselves and also great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. Well, we are going to take some time to consider uh, this passage together from 1 Timothy uh, in Luke chapter 10, Jesus teaches uh, or tells a famous story about the Good Samaritan. If you're a church person, you're probably familiar with it. But very briefly, what happens is a listener comes along and asks Jesus to answer the question, who is my neighbor? And Jesus is like, well, I'll tell you a story to demonstrate who your neighbor is. And he says, a man's traveling down a road from Jerusalem to Jericho called the Jericho Road. He's attacked, he's beaten, he's robbed, he's left lying in a pool of his own blood. The first two people who come on the scene are Jewish religious leaders. They don't help him. They cross to the other side. They go past. Finally, along comes a Samaritan, an ethnic and religious enemy of Jewish people. He stops. He helps the man. He binds his wounds. He puts him on a donkey, takes him to an inn to recover, pays all the costs of the recovery. And at the end of the story, then, Jesus turns back to the man who'd asked him the question, and he says, who was the neighbor to the one in need? And the listener, you know, begrudgingly but correctly answers, the Samaritan. And Jesus tells him, go and do likewise. He says, if you want to know what a neighbor is like, the good Samaritan is your guide. And in that phrase from Jesus, go and do likewise, the foundation is laid for a Christian life of mercy and justice towards any who cross our path. Because the deeper meaning of the parable of the good Samaritan is not simply that you need to now go and try really, really hard to be kind and generous, but rather that spiritually speaking, we all have found ourselves on the road, bloodied, penniless, without hope. And God was the neighbor. He was the Samaritan who came along, who bound our wounds, healed our diseases, and has brought us to a safe shelter. And now he has commanded us to go and be like him. Go do it as he did. So the Jericho Road then... Is any place where Christians walk, any place where Christians go, any people that Christians come into contact with, we're sent to be merciful, both individually, but also corporately, that, that we arrange our lives as Christians uh, to do justice, to show mercy to the people of our place, whatever place that is. Now, what does the Good Samaritan have to do with the text in front of us this morning? Well, you know, when you come across a job listing, you know, on, on LinkedIn or whatever, and, and, and they always have qualifications listed or nearly always, you know, you have to know Microsoft Excel or have five years of relevant experience or whatever. This text sounds a lot like that. It's qualifications for a job, for a role, qualifications for a deacon. So then what do deacons have to do with the Jericho Road and a life of mercy? Well, our church needs to take the next step of growth and or, organization to get better at obeying the command to be merciful. And for thousands of years, Christian churches have had deacons to help them organize merciful ministries inside and outside the church. Now, the responsibility to lead such a ministry by both example and by talk, by leading, it's a serious one, a heavy one, an important one. So we want to take time together to consider it. 
What makes for a deacon? What do they look like? How do we find them? What do they do? And in addition to my sermon this morning, at our info table after the service, there's a handout there which answers, again, a lot of the nuts and bolts questions about how deacons will work at our church, how, how, they, how are they nominated and trained, just lots of different things. It's a couple pages long. But the sermon today is focused just on some of the larger questions. Now, before we get into them, let's just say you're a visitor here, or you're here and you're a non-Christian, you're like, you got dragged along to church on a Thanksgiving weekend or whatever, and you're just wondering, what does this have to do with me? Why are you talking about church organizational things in the sermon time? A couple things. As we talk together about what makes for a healthy church, what makes for good deacons, the underlying foundation, which you'll see as you get towards the end, it's a picture of what God is like. See, in Christian theology, we say the head of the church is Jesus Christ. And so when we do this right, when, when we do deacons right, we are actually showing the world what Jesus would do with his hands and his feet. Even in discussion about organizational like philosophy and roles, I, I hope you'll see Jesus more clearly. And I, and I mean that sincerely. And also, if, if you know, social media is any indication, a lot of people in recent times in, in Ottawa are interested in this idea of taxing churches. And, and there's, it's clear from comments that people are wondering, well, money comes into the church somehow. Where does it go? Um, why, why do churches operate the way they do? Should, should they be taxed? Do you have a, a dragon horde you know, in the basement somewhere? Like, wait, what is going on with the money in churches? And listen, that's a fair question. And so if you're here or you're listening and you are a tax the churches sort of person, like I don't have a lot of tax code commentary and it's not amateur tax hour with Ben, but, but I do hope you'll understand just how we spend our money and time, like what we're doing here, and then, you know, afterwards you can go, you know, write your angry tweets or whatever. But that's kind of, that's, I, I hope it'll be sort of interesting and helpful and relevant, even if you're not sort of a regular part of Resurrection Church. But I want to look together at three questions. It's how we'll frame our time. First, what do deacons do? Second, what qualifies a person to be a deacon? And third, God as deacon. Something interesting you'll find if you read through the whole New Testament is that Paul talks regularly about what a deacon is, but he doesn't talk much about what a deacon does. In fact, if you read the passage today, it's like a lengthy description of deacons and their wives, their character, their family life. But what do they do? Well, Paul doesn't say here. But I think the answer to that question, it's buried within just that first word of the text, deacons. That word, get ready for it, it's from a Greek word meaning diakonos. That sounds very similar. It's easy to remember. But the, the Greek word diakonos means servant, one who serves. It can be used as a noun. There's like a verb form of it. You know, serve, servant, serves, all these things. And most places in the New Testament, when the, when the writer uses this Greek word diakonos, the translators translate it mostly served or, or serve or servant. For instance, in Luke 22, the disciples get into an argument about who is the greatest. And I can imagine looking back, if you were a disciple, it's like, a, like your grade nine photo. It's kind of awkward. You'd rather not think about it too much. And, but you look back and like, oh, I guess we did argue about that. But they're arguing about who is, who's the greatest. Jesus is sitting there and they're still, still debating it. And Jesus breaks into their discussion and he tells them, the rulers of the pagan world, if they're in charge, they lord it over other people. He says, not so with you. Let the greatest among you be like the youngest and let the leader among you as one who deacons, uh, who serves. That's how they translate it. But it's this word diakonos. And then in Mark 10, Jesus is talking about his mission in the world. And he says, it's again a famous quote, the son of man did not come to be deaconed, to be served, but to deacon, but to serve. It's the same word. It's used all over the place. It's often translated servant. 
But translators here, they make a sort of a proper version of it. It's a capital D deacon when describing this official role, this formal role in the church. So then, what does it mean to serve? Well, I can tell you what it doesn't mean. If someone claims to be a deacon, or is even functioning as a deacon, but uses their position for power or for personal gain, that is the antithesis of what it actually means to be a deacon. And there have been churches, there are churches, where people angle to become a deacon because they think it means prestige or perks or control of the budget. And, and listen, that's not what a deacon is. A deacon serves. Now, a deacon may have sort of incidentally power or authority or control over part of a budget, but that's always in service to their main goals. It's never actually the, the reason all on its own. So we might define it this way. To, to serve, to be a deacon, to deacon is to directly minister to those in need and to help the church um, succeed in its mission and ministry. And I'm going to unpack that. So a deacon is one who ministers to those who need help. And in the history of the church, this is primarily people who need physical, emotional, social, financial help. The injured man on the road to Jericho, if he's any kind of model, he's in all kinds of need. He needs to be served in a multitude of ways. And in, in our Presbyterian denomination, we have what's called a book of church order, which tells us some of these things. But it says deacons are to look out for people who are friendless, people who are sick, people who are in distress, very broadly speaking, people who are in need, very broadly speaking. And in a church setting like ours, that might mean bringing or arranging meals for new parents or for sick people, bereaved people. It might mean visiting people in hospitals or homes. It might mean welcoming new people to the church. It might mean assisting newcomers to Canada. Deacons ought to be directly involved, interested in that kind of work. They lead by example, but they also serve the church by building systems that enable other people to get involved. So they serve as individuals, yet they lead by example, but they also work so that it's easier for everyone else in the church to participate. So listen, it's great if a deacon takes a meal to a hungry person. But it's also great if they set up a system so that other people can see okay, what meals are needed, when are they needed, where are they needed, do they like chicken wings or, or salad, or, you know, they, they figure out all those things so that everyone else can participate as well. But we can even go further than that. Deacons serve the church by helping run the behind-the-scenes systems that keep our, our church, any church, running smoothly. A deacon might be skilled in finances. Uh, they can take care of the bookkeeping or the cleaning, or they can manage church assets in some way. This frees up both the elders to worry about the spiritual health of the church, and it frees up all the rest of us to serve directly. Now, in our case, you're like, you guys, you know, rent a gym. You, you don't have, yeah, we, we don't have a church building, but we might someday. And the deacons of the church, they would help us figure out how do we use that asset in wise and good ways. Do we hire cleaners? Do we, do we have volunteers? How, how do we arrange our life? Um, and I hope you can see then how, how valuable deacons are to the church by serving directly and by enabling the service of others. But perhaps you're wondering, why do we need to codify it? Why so official? Can't people just sort of do this and not have the title of deacon? And sure, in a perfect world, the answer is yes. We probably wouldn't need it. But of course, we don't live in a perfect world. And it helps things flow smoothly when there's a team of people who are specifically tasked with thinking about this, fact, this aspect of the church's life. There's less scrambling around, less back and forth confusion. And for those who are gifted and called to be a deacon, it's an honor and a privilege 
when, when the church and the, and the elders lay their hands on you, they look you in the eye and they tell you, this is what God made you to do. And we need you to do it right here in this church. And I can tell you, as a young pastor who really didn't know very much at all about what it meant to be a pastor, that ordination process, it mattered. It mattered when you get into real life situations. Maybe just think about it this way. Most of us work in our lives. We do the roles assigned to us. We complete it. You know, we go to work. We, uh, we parent our children. Like whatever the things we have to do. But how many of us stop and sometimes work on our lives? Figure out how to work smarter, not just harder. Good systems for getting your homework done or whatever. Um, to, to work on your life is a step back. Take a longer term view and figure out what is the best way to do this, not the only way. How can I sharpen the axe instead of just chopping more or chopping harder? That's sort of what deacons are doing for the church. They're considering, how can we get more effective? How can we arrange ourselves for better impact? What kind of systems can we build? How can we make sure that the needy people get helped? Look, we need servants in our church. We need deacons. Now, for the first seven years of our existence, the elders did this. They still do this alongside their other duties. But the primary work of elders is not that. It's teaching, prayer, and spiritual health of the church. So we chipped away all the deacon things as needed. We pulled, we pulled some of you in to help, you know, here and there. But it was always our goal as a church to have people ordained and set aside for this role. And I think our church will actually be a healthier, more sustainable, more just, more merciful church once we have deacons in place. So what do they do? They're servants. They serve by doing it themselves. They serve by leading ministries so the mission of the church can go forward. And again, this is all covered on the handout, which you can grab afterwards. But we need to move to part two, which is what qualifies someone to be a deacon? Deacons, according to verse eight, must be dignified. So Paul begins with one positive attribute before he moves or before he lists to a bunch of negative attributes. So this word dignified can really be understood as sort of the overriding quality, the summarizing quality of a deacon. Now, dignified, what comes to mind for you when you think of that word? I get images of like royalty, solemn solemn processions. Uh, British people, you know, maybe. That, that's not exactly the meaning. You don't have to be British to be a deacon. We take people of all, you know, cultures, whatever. Uh, but think more along the lines of respectable. A person you'd look up to in many different areas. A person who's reliable. And so if that's the overriding quality we're looking for, what detracts from that? Well, Paul lists a bunch of things, and we'll, we'll kind of hammer through them here. First, he says, not someone who's double-tongued. Not a medical condition. You know, it's, it's, it's an expression, probably comes from the forked tongue of a snake. I couldn't find the etymology. But it just means someone who says one thing to one person and a different thing to someone else. Paul says a deacon shouldn't be like that. They should be, always be credible and truthful. If they say something to you that you can rely on their word, they have the courage to tell the truth, like no matter who's around, no matter what's going on. Second, Paul warns against people who are addicted to wine or addicted to money. Many have lost their respectability because their life gets consumed or overrun with alcohol or work or gambling or different things. If, if you're a Christian deacon, Paul says, you should have a single master, that's Jesus, and therefore you cannot be mastered by anything else. Your finances, your drinking, your life should be well-ordered, should be under control. Third, Paul says, the faith of a potential deacon must be robust. They hold, they hold the mysteries of faith with a clear conscience. And the mystery of faith means sort of like the gospel delivered to us, but also that, look, some things are in the Bible are kind of mysterious, but the conscience of a deacon is to be clear about the main things. 
See, what we're looking for in a deacon is mature faith. They've seen some things. They've walked through some dark valleys. They've ascended some bright mountains. Their faith has been down a number of roads. Now, in contrast to the description of elders, which was the passage right before this, there's nothing listed here about being able to teach the faith. If a deacon can teach, great, that's a bonus, we love it, but it's not mandatory. Their main work is not teaching, but in practical service. But their faith must be real, it must be vibrant. Fourth, in verse 10, Paul recommends a testing process to see if they're reliable and trustworthy. In a local church like ours, that probably means we're looking for people who've, who've been at our church for at least a year. It's not mandatory, he doesn't list an amount of time, but it is a way to think about this qualification. Not that any of you new people, if you're new, we're not suspicious of you. We just haven't had time to see your lives up close. We hope you're blameless. You know, we we think you might be, but there's there's time to figure out those things as we go. We're not in a rush. We're looking for people who've been tested and approved. Now, in verse 11, things get tricky, and I'm going to return to that in a moment. I'm going to handle the middle of verse 12 first, where Paul says, a deacon should be adept at managing their household. If they've got children, they should be well-mannered children. Or well-managed children, not well-mannered children. Uh, Whatever their household is, if it's an apartment, if it's a tiny house, whatever, it should be in good order. Now, well-managed children does not mean that your children never never cry, never cause a fuss. It just means you should be able to look at the household of a deacon, the family of a deacon, to get an indication if they are ready for more responsibility, if they're ready to help manage the larger household of God's church. So as you watch them with their kids, the patience they show, the care they give, the effort they put in, of course they're not going to be perfect. It just needs to be consistent, solid, reliable. And frankly, this is one reason why young parents don't often serve in church roles. Because when kids are little, most parents have a full plate of responsibilities. Like, you're just trying to survive. Like, keep your head above water. And often it's when kids become teenagers or they head off to university or college or just move out that a person then has the time and has the experience to serve as an elder or deacon. Now look, our church skews young in general. We'll probably have younger deacons than most. But in general, we're looking for people who've who've been through some stuff. And a person's household, whatever it may be, children, if they have them, are a good indication of whether they're ready for more responsibility. Okay, now back to verse 11. Paul addresses their wives in verse 11. Now, a couple more Greek things, because it kind of matters here. In Greek, the first word of that sentence, their, their wives, it doesn't exist. It's assumed. It makes the sentence flow in in English. Uh, The sentence just begins with this Greek word called gune, and Greek scholars will tell you it can either be translated wives or women. So without looking at the rest of the context, uh, Paul might be either referring, as the ESV translates it, to the wives of the deacons, or to women who function in a deacon-type role. And you should know, there's considerable confusion and disagreement, even amongst, you know, conservative, reformed churches, our little corner of the Christian world, there's disagreement over whether women may serve as deacons. Because some think, well, verse 11 refers to women deacons. Others say, no, 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 it refers to the wives of male deacons. For instance, two conservative Reformed denominations, if you know the Reformed Presbyterian Church of North America, we've got a few in town, and the, the Associate Reformed Church, uh, Reformed Presbyterian Church, they both ordain women as deacons, whereas others do not. Some Reformed churches create a separate category, and they say, well, women are deaconesses, or the order of Phoebe, and Phoebe's this uh, woman named in Romans 16 uh, as a deaconess. 
And so, uh, and then actually there was a Presbyterian church that, or Presbyterian denomination that merged with the PCA, our denomination, and they had ordained deaconesses. They had like this, this third category. And additionally, to just throw more confusion on the pile, when Paul talked about elders, he didn't mention their wives at all. So why does he mention them now for deacons? I'm going to give you how we understand the verse. Like if we did everyone's interpretation, we'd be here all day. Uh, I'm going to give you how we understand and interpret this verse, allowing for the fact that Christians in good conscience may disagree with us, okay? You can disagree. I'm just going to give you our take. We would say, there's evidence in the scriptures that women are to be involved in deacon-type work. The wives of deacons, they're definitely involved. Other women in the church are definitely involved. Um, but ultimately, where we've landed as a denomination is that only qualified men can be ordained as deacons, and they appoint others, both men and women, to assist them to help in their deacon task. So only men get to be ordained or have the possibility of being ordained, but both sexes can serve as needed. And as you might imagine, there are situations where a woman is definitely better suited to deacon work than a man. You're working with someone who's unexpectedly pregnant, a woman suffering from a miscarriage, some types of counseling. Like there are plenty of situations where we need the perspective and expertise that a woman would provide. But in our denomination, we do not ordain women to this role. Women can be appointed to assist. Now, I'm not sure how some of you are, react to that. I think some of you are like, that's fine. That's what I believe. You know, it's, I'm, I'm tracking. No, no issues. Just, just move forward. But I know others of you will probably be put off by that. Maybe you find it sexist. Maybe you just say, I don't, I don't agree with how you interpret those scriptures. What I want you to know is that myself, any of the other elders, we would be glad to talk with you about why we landed where we did, the process we went through, the, all the discussions we had. Um, and I also want you to know, you don't have to agree with us to belong to this church. It's something that we would say is a secondary issue. We say the gospel, Jesus, apostles, creed level stuff. Those are the truths that we gather around, that we insist on, and important, but ultimately secondary matters, like elders and deacons, we think there is room for Christians to disagree. And I know some of you already do disagree with me. Now, if you do disagree and want to stick around, you know, please don't start a bumper sticker campaign or, or hand out flyers at the door or whatever. You're free to hold your beliefs in good conscience. You're free to express your beliefs. If someone asks you, what do you think? You're like, yeah, you know, I think they're wrong and I think this. That's all fine. And I would urge you also to remember, women are excluded from these roles, yes, but so are most men. Not many men are qualified and able to do these roles to meet all these qualifications, to take on this burden, it's no easy ask. The reason I'm preaching on this, because our elders, we think we do have some men, but we'll see. And finally, I would not, or I should mention here that single men are not necessarily excluded from being a deacon. Paul was not excluded. Jesus wouldn't have been excluded. To be the husband of one wife, as verse 12 says, that just means to be a one-woman man. The idea is, if you have a woman, if you are married to one, you should be devoted to her. And so if you aren't married, this doesn't apply. The wives of deacons, as I mentioned, they have a very similar description to their husbands. They must also be dignified. They must also guard the way they speak, not slandering people. They must also be sober-minded, a.k.a. not addicted to anything. They must also be faithful in all things. But the reality is this. If your husband serves as a, an elder or a deacon in the church, in, as a wife, you are signing up as well. More will be demanded of your family than other families in the church. More evenings, more weekends, more time. The wife will bear a burden. She will be a partner in ministry. She will be pulled in to help. But we are looking for a respectable, dignified men to serve our church as deacons. 
Now, part three, God is a deacon. When Jesus came to earth as a human, what did his life look like? What characterized him? Well, if you read through the Gospels over and over, what you see is a joining of two things, word and deed, teaching and, and mercy. For instance, in one place, the Gospels say Jesus sat down to teach. He taught for a long time, and then at the end of the day, he healed all the diseases of all the people who were there. Or that he taught all day on a hillside, and then everyone was hungry at the end of the day, and so he fed them. Or that he healed the blind man, and then he talked to him about his life. But these things always go together, word and deed, deed and word. That's how the kingdom of God spreads, and indeed, it's the very nature of God himself. He is a God who speaks and heals. He teaches and he helps. Now listen, I think in our corner of the Christian world, there is at times a tendency to value words over deeds. And to be fair, without words to explain them, deeds are sort of silent. They're just deeds. But sometimes I think we're like, ah, deeds don't matter that much as long as you have the correct theology. And sometimes Reformed churches have spent so much time worrying about their theology that the deeds get weak and anemic. But in the life of Jesus and in the, in the historic Christian church, mercy has always accompanied the preaching of the gospel. And I would also argue in our modern age, I think deeds are just about all people will listen to. From my experience, people have very limited use for theological discussion, you know, d- uh, debates about the bigger, deeper things of life. But deeds of mercy, deeds of kindness, they still speak. And if a church does not intentionally pursue deacon-type activities, mercy and justice, inside and outside the church, I think we're in deep trouble. And I think we're not actually ministering as Christ did. If a church gives up on deacon-type things, the church, that church will not have the evidence to back up the preaching of the gospel. And I worry a little bit for a church like ours, if we do not find a way to dedicate ourselves to the work of mercy and justice, we may accidentally slip into a theology-is-all-that-matters mindset. But it's even a little bit more than that. Remember that quote I read from Luke 22? The disciples were arguing about who was the greatest. And Jesus says, that's not the way it should be with you. And to make his point, Jesus says, even though he is, in fact, the greatest, he deacons. He serves. He says, I, 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 didn't, I didn't come here to be deaconed, but to deacon. Not to be served, but to serve. And so, listen, if a church were to jettison the intentional practice of mercy and justice and care for the needy, we are not just being a half-hearted church. But we also mock the name of Christ. Because he was the, the deacon, the capital D deacon. He was a servant of everyone. He ministered to everyone around him, including all those who didn't deserve it. He found all of us lying on the road. Without hope, without money, he brought us back to life. One of the main reasons we actually have deacons in our church is because they're an ongoing, permanent picture of what God has done and is doing for us. And if you look there at the last verse, we'll finish with this. Paul argues, if someone serves well as a deacon, they gain a good standing for themselves. Yep, great. But they also create great confidence in the faith that's in Christ Jesus. Isn't that amazing? Human deacons, when they serve well, they actually inspire people towards faith in Jesus. The original deacon. They're this picture of what God is like. Because our God is a God who serves. Our God is a God who came for the spiritually lame and destitute the bleeding and broken, and we go and do likewise because of what he has done for us. Let's pray together. God, we give you thanks that we, we learn how to be a deacon from you. 
that, that in all of our lives, you have done it first. You have found the needy and gathered them to yourself. You've healed their diseases. You've bound their wounds. And I pray that we would begin with that today, that, that we would understand what you have done for us in Christ, and, and in turn, then, how we can go do that for other people's we ask for wisdom for our church going forward. We need much wisdom for this season to find the right people to serve. I pray that you give us great wisdom uh, and grace as we enter this process. And we ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.